Well, we exist to know Christ and make him known. And so we have this kind of threefold message. Uh, Jesus is wonderful. You'll love him. Jesus is Savior. You need him. Jesus is Lord. Obey him. And in making Jesus known, we want to remove all unnecessary barriers. We want people to leave the church service, for example, having been inspired, lifted. We want people to know that God is good. And then we come to a passage like this. It's a pretty uncomfortable text, and we're not always sure what to do with it. Did God really strike this couple down? Doesn't that just reinforce the perception that God is an angry judge just waiting to slam his fist down on us at every misdeed? Is this episode recorded in order to say to us, shape up, watch yourself, or this could happen to you? Well, I think the answer to that is no. That if this was God's normal way of dealing with Christians who sin, every Sunday morning would be a funeral service and it wouldn't be me leading the service because the first service would be my own funeral. Now, this passage is here, I think partially at least, to record accurately what the early church was like. You know, people say, we need to be more like the early church. We need to be more like the church of Acts. Well, if we read through the book of Acts, we see things like personal conflict, theological disagreement, petty grumbling, and in this episode, we see bald hypocrisy. And these things have shown up in the church right from the beginning because the church is made up of forgiven but not perfect people. And the Bible never glosses over that fact. And that's good for us to know. But more significantly, though, I think that this passage is here because it reveals something about God to us and reveals something to us of what it means to be the church. And I would say in these, put it this way, that this text is here to show us that God so closely identifies himself with the church that he treats it as an extension of himself. I want to say that again because I think We often think of the church as something other than that. We think of the church as an incubator for our spiritual nurture or as a community or family for our spiritual support or as a Christian vocational institute for our spiritual development. And it is all of these things. But underneath all of those things is the assumption that the church is primarily for us. And yet the fundamental purpose and identity of the church is that it is to be the revelation of God to the world. And so again, God so closely identifies himself with the church that he considers it, treats it as an extension of himself. That is, I think, the truth behind what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. So let's go there. The background to this episode begins at the end of chapter 4. We read at the end of chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, the description of the church. Their ministry is done with power. They enjoy God's favor or grace. And one of the evidences of the reality of God among them is the fact that there is a fundamental unity 
among them, that they are one in heart and soul. That's the phrase the Bible uses. And there's a sharing of the resources so that no one among them will be in need. This is what we read. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And as an example of that kind of giving, we're introduced to Barnabas, who we'll see later on in Acts, but whom we meet here for the first time. And Barnabas isn't his name at all. His name is Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname that the apostles have given to him. It means son of encouragement. And it's a nickname that speaks to the love and affection and the esteem that Barnabas was held in by the others. Partially because of the character that he demonstrates here. Barnabas sold a field he owned, we read, brought the proceeds from the sale, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then begins chapter 5, and it begins with the word, but. What we're about to read at the beginning of chapter 5 forms a stark contrast to the description that we've just read at the end of chapter 4. And, and verse divisions and chapter divisions, by the way, came a lot later. And so Luke is just rolling from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5 without a break. And there's a contrast. What a great church! United, generous. For example, here's Barnabas. But, on the other hand, here are Ananias and Sapphira. And so we read, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, immediately a couple of things to notice. First, Notice the phrase, kept back. The, the Greek word that is used here is used only one other time in the New Testament, Titus chapter 2, verse 10, where we translate it steal or pilfer. And the idea is that by holding back, keeping back some of the money, Ananias is acting dishonestly. We find out very soon what that dishonesty was. Ananias is giving part of the money from the sale, pretending that he's giving all of the money from the sale. Later on, Peter will ask his wife, Sapphira, is this how much you sold the land for? And Sapphira will say, yes. And so, secondly, then, notice that his wife is in on it, that there's collusion in this affair. This is a planned act of willful deceit by which Ananias and Sapphira want the church to think something about themselves that is not true. And we kind of guess here, but probably they want to appear publicly as being of the same stuff as Barnabas. But they want Barnabas's reputation without their actually being generous. They want the platinum partner plaque on the wall, but without giving at a platinum level. And if Ananias is expecting public affirmation, he gets something very different. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was not the money at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. 
See, it wasn't the keeping of the money that was the issue. In fact, Peter goes out of his way to affirm Ananias' right of ownership. Peter says, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. You could have done what you wanted with the field before you sold it. You could have done what you wanted with the money after you sold it. They could have said, we sold the field for 2000 here's 1000 and they would have been fine. But what they did was sold the field for 2000 brought 1000 and said, we sold the field for 1000 Here is all of it. Wanted to be thought of as generous without sacrifice. They wanted reputation without character, reputation without substance. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 warns about giving publicly so that people will praise your generosity. He says, don't do that. He calls people who do that hypocrites. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were a step lower than that yet. Not only was their motive for giving wrong, their giving itself was a sham. And who is the sin against? Well, it was against a church. Ananias lied to the community of faith. But more significantly, it was a sin against God. Notice what Peter says. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Later, you have not lied to men, but to God. See, Ananias thought that this was merely a deal between himself and the church. Maybe he thought, well, what they don't know won't hurt them. But what was really going on is that this was a, an episode, an encounter between Satan and between God. That what Ananias was doing was trying to lie to God, sinning against God. That what Ananias and Sapphira had done was an affront, not primarily to the church, but an insult to the perfect character of God. And all sin is ultimately against God. King David understood that. After his adultery with Bathsheba and then plotting the death of her husband, David later confessed in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. Hadn't he sinned against Bathsheba? Absolutely. Hadn't he sinned against his friend and comrade in arms, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? No question. But all sin is fundamentally against God above all. For the very nature of any sin is to move God off of the center. And David said that his own lusts were to be obeyed, not God's call to purity. Ananias decided that his greed and his desire for the affirmation of the people took precedence over God's call to integrity. And who is behind all this? Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Because greed and deceit are evil. And those who are slaves to such things place themselves in Satan's camp. And this isn't so much an issue of demon possession as it is a question of allegiance. Ananias professed allegiance to Christ, but really his allegiance was to himself and therefore to the kingdom of Satan. And so we ask and need to ask, what fills your heart? What are you committed to? What do you open your heart to? Jesus often spoke about money, recognizing that it's money or the things that we need money to do that pose the greatest threat to our pursuit of the kingdom of God. 
And yet even there, underneath the money issue, underneath the greed issue, there is the God of the self. It's the God of me first. It's the God of I want. I want comfort. I want reputation. I want to be great. I want to be comfortable. I want to be admired. I'm full of myself. And yet we, by contrast, are to be full of the Holy Spirit. That is, fully allegiant to the Spirit and to the kingdom of God, having His character, having His values reign in our lives. So when Ananias hears these words of Peter, that he had lied to God, he falls down and dies, and great understatement, great fear came on all who heard it. Yeah, of course it did. And Ananias is carried out and buried. And his wife Sapphira comes in about three hours later, and she doesn't know yet what has happened. And Peter gives to her the opportunity to come clean by showing her the money and asking, is this the price for the land? And I could just imagine Peter inside just going, oh, please, oh, please tell the truth. But instead, she sticks to the story that she and her husband have settled on and said, yes, it is. That's the full amount right there. And Peter's heart must have just sunk to hear those words. And so then he replies, how could you agree together to test the spirit of the Lord? And she too dies on the spot. And again, it stated the result is that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah, no wonder there was fear. Two people struck dead in the space of a few hours. And the clear implication of the text is that this is the judgment of God. And so no wonder that we're uncomfortable with this passage. This episode doesn't show up in my kids' story Bibles. I don't remember this on flannel graph when I was a kid. We don't like what looks like just a plain mean act of God. We're confused by what seems to us like an unfair or inconsistent act of God. I mean, why did God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? And why does he not strike down the high-profile hypocrites of our own day? I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. But there's a hint, I think, in... An episode that shows up in the Old Testament that really parallels this story. In Joshua chapter 7, God's people have just left the wilderness and have entered the promised land. And they're about to be established as the visible people of God among the nations. They're going to live out their calling publicly to be God's people. That is, the nations are to see Israel and discover by watching them what it looks like to be a people under the lordship of God. So this isn't just about Israel moving into their land. It's about God moving into a land filled with people who think other gods are supreme or superior at least. And as they enter the promised land, their first battle is against the city of Jericho. And they're commanded to destroy everything as a picture of their surrendering everything to God. And as a picture of demonstrating that there is no God that is able to save except 
the God of Israel, the Lord God. And yet one man, Achan, disregards the command to have everything destroyed and takes some of the plunder for himself. Now, the fact that he takes something, the word is the same as the word kept back. It's the only time that this word shows up in the Greek Old Testament. And in an act of greed and deceit, Achan hijacks the establishment of the people of God and is severely judged. Because if if this, this willful, conscious, intentional rebellion against the character of God goes unchecked and takes root in the people of God, the whole mission of God to reveal God to the nations, the whole mission veers off course. And here in Acts, we have the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, being established. They're bearing witness to the the people around them that Jesus is the Son of God whose death and resurrection fulfill the requirements of God on man's behalf and that therefore in Jesus and in Jesus only is forgiveness of sin and acceptability to God. In other words, like Israel of old, they are the revelation of God to the world around them. And in Acts chapter 4, Satan tries to hijack the church through violence, through persecution and threats, and he fails. And if anything, the church gets more bold, more effective. So now in Acts chapter 5, he tries to corrupt the church to make it rotten from within. And if he succeeds, the mission of the church to be the witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth will be compromised. It will veer off course. And that is why it is such a fearful thing to be willfully deceitful. Again, this is not just about imperfection. This is not just about sinning. This is not just about our being fearful of God when we fail. This is not about our struggling with sin and feeling like we're being hypocritical. This is deliberate, premeditated spiritual hypocrisy. This is publicly identifying oneself with God while at the same time consciously living a rejection of all that God is. Ananias and Sapphira willfully misrepresented themselves to the church. They're just deceiving the people. And what they forgot to take into account was that they were not just trying to deceive the people, they were lying to God. And so like a, a surgeon excising a cancerous tumor, here God judges Ananias and Sapphira in the midst of the people of Jesus Christ. And Peter's words here are very revealing. You have not lied to men, but to God. And that's why I say that that I think this text is about God so closely identifying himself with the church that he considers it an extension of himself, that how you treat the church is how you treat the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, You are God's temple. If you destroy that temple, God will destroy you. So we are not just God's agents in the world, not just his servants. The Bible calls us the body of Christ. Calls us the temple of God. That means that God lives in us. He inhabits us. That when people look at the church, they are to see God his character, and what he is like.
I also think that the fact that God so, uh, so closely identifies himself with the church, it's not just a word of challenge, but it's a word of phenomenal encouragement. It speaks of God's protection and vindication of his people. It speaks of his nearness and his care. Imagine God so much at the heart of the church in the book of Acts that when something comes in to threaten that church, God is pretty decisive. Because he's committed to blessing. Have you ever thought of God's judgment as being an expression of his love and his blessing? I've used this analogy before, and it's particularly relevant in light of a baby dedication this morning. But if somebody broke into my house and I saw them trying to make off with my child, I would react in violence. I would step in and I would judge pretty severely. Why? Because I'm harsh and judgmental by nature? Or because I'm so committed to the welfare of those close to me that anything that tries to harm them, I will step in. And when God judges, it's always an expression of his commitment to bless and to do good to those who are his and to those who love him. And I wonder sometimes if we feel like, if we read a passage like Acts chapter 5 and ask ask questions about the severity of God's judgment, do you ever wonder why we don't ask the question about the severity of Ananias and Sapphira's sin? Do Do we think that God's judgment is so severe because we've lost sight of just how great and fearful a thing it is to sin willfully against the eternal perfect holiness of God. I think if we find God harsh, it's because we've lost sight of what sin is. And sin is a terrible crime against the goodness of the eternal and infinite God. And I do need to say this, we're out of time. But even as God shows himself a judge of sin, he is revealed as a God of grace. Because the truth is, all of us are Ananias and Sapphira. All of us at some level have found ourselves in a place of conscious sin, chosen sin against the holiness of God. And the truth is that if God was fair, and he's not, thank goodness, If God was fair, all of us would be struck down. All of us would have our lives cut short. All of us would have eternity torn away from us if God was perfectly fair all the time. But God has acted because he does not want our fate to be that of Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus was struck down. Jesus breathed his last. Jesus' life was cut short. But not because he deceived his father or lied to the people of God. But because we did. And if anything, Jesus was faithful and honoring and perfectly reflected the reality of God to the people around him. If Jesus died, it was because he died for us. 
And God is a God of grace to put someone, his own son, in our place, in the place of judgment, so that we could be forgiven and walk away and live to see another day and to see eternity with him. And if there is a word of warning in this text for us, it is, let the thing that separates us from Ananias and Sapphira always only be the fact that we have acknowledged our sin and thrown ourselves on the mercy of a Savior. Because the day that we stop doing that, the day, the day that we consistently choose to live apart from God is a day that we find ourselves in danger. And let us throw ourselves on the mercy of God, our Savior. There's a song I listen to sometimes. Charlie Peacock wrote it, DC Talk recorded it later. Some of you will know these words. I keep trying to find a life on my own apart from you. I'm the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. The disease of self runs through my blood. It's a cancer fatal to my soul. Every attempt on my behalf has failed to bring this sickness under control. Tell me what's going on inside of me. I despise my own, my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my suspicions that I'm still a man in need of a savior. So if you are a Christian and you sin and you are in Christ, listen to the Holy Spirit who reminds you to hate sin and confess it and know that God does not hold your sins against you because they have been paid for in Christ. Don't read Acts 5 and live in fear that God will strike you down for every failing. Your sins are taken care of in Jesus. But if you are not a Christian or you choose willfully to continue in sin and to refuse lordship of God in your life, then I plead with you, you're in a place of danger. You're in a place of judgment, a place of wrath, and you will not get yourself out of that place. Only Jesus, who has already experienced the wrath of God for you, can save. So come to Jesus today if you have not done that. And finally, people of God, as a congregation, let us remember that God has brought us together as his people for one reason, and for one reason only, one twofold reason, that we might know his goodness and make his character known, that we might know who God is, and that through him others might know who he is. Let us treat one another well with authenticity and with love and care so that the world around us can look at the church and say, I know what God is like. I know what God is like because I can see him in his people. May the Lord bless his word to you this morning for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God. Though the eye of sinful man cannot behold you, you have forgiven us our sins in Christ. 
We can stand before your throne and love and worship and receive your affirmation. I pray this morning for conviction of sin by your Holy Spirit. That by your grace, as you so often do, do, you will gently lead us back to you. If we find ourselves beginning to wander, being less than what you call us to, forgetting about you. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, your son, without whom we would be lost. We are his, and in him we are yours. Form your character, O God, in this church increasingly for the sake of the glory of Jesus. Go with us now and show yourself to us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.